From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. Today is uh, January 26th, and I'm so happy that you could join the program today, and I'm so happy to welcome to the program today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Brittany Deal. And for this episode, we're going to be talking about something that we have sadly neglected discussing very frequently on this program and that is small ruminants. And what are what are we talking about? Well, so sheep and goats, of course, so and maybe more, but we're going to find out together. So let me welcome you to the program, Dr. Deal. I'm really glad to have you along. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Happy to be here. Now, on this program, in the, I don't know, 12 or 13 years or more that it's been on the air, we have talked about a lot of different kinds of animals, including reptiles and amphibians and snakes and even rabbits and fish and birds, but seldom have we spent much time, I think, talking about small ruminants. So can you describe and maybe define that group and and who it includes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So when we say the word ruminant, we're talking about an animal that has a four-chambered stomach. Most people will think of a cow when they think of that. So then we throw the word small in front of that. Um, so we're talking about sheep and goats in this category. Um, they have a very similar stomach to the cow, just on a much smaller scale. Uh, deer are also uh, classified in this category. And then um, some of our camelid species also um, folks will include Um, But my primary focus um, is sheep and goats, but those other ones also fit into that category. Yeah, so these animals uh, are sort of taxonomically, are they related in a a substantial way? Um, More related to just kind of their GI um, function and their ability um, to, you know, survive in the wild. As far as um, really back far, that's a question that, I don't have a great answer to, actually. Yeah. Well, that's okay, because for the purposes of the show, we're going to be talking about topics that people might be interested in learning about should they ever choose to want to have something like a sheep or goat. And and there must be a pretty sizable number of folks who do, because all one needs to really do is go for a drive somewhere outside of Gainesville uh, or, you know, the heart of Ocala or something, and you will, before too long, pass by a, a field somewhere where there's maybe a house on it and a few goats outside. Um, sheep, Absolutely. Yeah, sheep I see a little bit less frequently, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not popular. They're certainly very important agriculturally. So, um, you know, maybe a, a great place to, to start here is uh, when we talk about these animals, um, you mentioned that the stomach is kind of the the defining feature that makes them ruminants. Uh, how is it that a four-chambered stomach works? Yeah, so um, we the four compartments there are the rumen, the reticulum, the omasum, and the abomasum. So this is, like I said at the beginning, the cow functions in a very similar way. So these guys are all um, forage consumers, so they like to eat grass primarily or something of that, that type. Um, and that that um, food source goes directly to the rumen, which we have a lot of microbes and things like that that 
that live in that chamber of the stomach and they help to break down those forages as well as some other byproducts that some of these ruminants are able to utilize that some of our other um, monogastrics like our dogs or our pigs and things like that are not able to. Um, and then they, they convert um, those to usable energy sources and then it continues to move uh, through the omasum and abomasum. It's con- just continued kind of um, processing of those those forage products, and then when we get to the abomasum, which is the last chamber, before we move to the uh, small intestine, that's kind of the the more true stomach where we, you know, have the stomach acid and things like that that, that mirrors, you know, us as well as um, some of those other monogastrics that I mentioned previously, and that's kind of the, the final phase before we move um, throughout the rest of, of the GI tract. So is this particular setup, this arrangement of these stomachs, does it have everything to do with what these animals eat and sort of evolutionarily that is kind of how nature decided to to solve this problem? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so these are animals that are going to be eating grass and just kind of be out in pastures mostly, correct? Yep, primarily. I mean, they're able to utilize some of those other grain sources as well, corns and things like that, but they they're definitely meant to uh, consume forages. And the, one of the primary differences kind of between sheep and goats here, sheep are grazers, so they like to, to eat eat grasses primarily. And goats are more browsers, so that's why we'll see them kind of eating, um, you know, weeds or different um, leaves off of trees and kind of rummaging through all sorts of other uh, brush and, and different items as compared to only eating grass. They certainly can eat grass, but it's their preference to eat some of those other items versus sheep don't do very well with some of those those other things. They'll they'll eat it if they have to to get by, but they're they're more known to be grazers. And this means that, you know, the care of these animals probably requires a, a, a deal of uh, at least a, a significant portion of area, right? I mean, because they need to have enough ground unless you're supplementing what they're eating with some kind of feed, commercially available feed maybe. They're going to need enough area to to have the food source uh, that available that they will consume. Are you able to gauge, and somebody must know this, people have been keeping sheep and goats for thousands of years, are you able to gauge about how much area a individual animal might need in order to have the food resources? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that definitely ties back to what you were just saying, you know, how much you're wanting to supplement and as well as just the kind of the quality of the forages that they are consuming and perhaps even the time of the year is going to play into that. But kind of a, some of a general rule of thumb, as we say about somewhere between three to five of these guys per acre is usually a general recommendation. Mm. So, let us then kind of go back here and and discuss why it is that folks might choose to keep sheep and goats. They provide some very useful things to people. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple um, different things that these guys are utilized for. The primary um, one being a meat resource, a uh, red meat resource. Um, then they also uh, are known for dairy products that they pr- um, produce, so milk and you know derivatives that we get from that, cheeses and butters and soaps and things like that. And then uh, last but not least, some folks just choose to 
keep these guys as pets. And then on a smaller scale as well, it used to be a lot bigger, but it has the market has kind of decreased some to this point. It's also a fiber resource, so we use that that wool um, or hair in some of these cases um, to also uh, be a resource for clothing and things like that. Yeah, I mean wool wool from sheep. Uh, maybe you know it's maybe it's not a huge industry in Florida that I know of, but. Around the world, it is it's pretty significant, um, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely not as big here. And depending on the the kind of the breed of sheep that you have, and even some of these goats, one of the ones that I would say is probably uh, most known would be uh, the Angora goats. They uh, produce um, something called mohair, and it's a kind of a long, smooth fiber, um, and it's it's known um, pretty well um, throughout the world for for its product. Um, it's kind of a um, a notable thing for them as well. Okay, so uh, if we're talking then, uh, I, this was something I can't believe that I hadn't even really thought about, though, uh, because you know, if you're talking about, oh, I don't know, when we discuss individual species of animals mostly on this program, yes, we're talking about dogs and cats, and, and there are, of course, different uh, breeds of cats, but we don't really tend to get into that as much as we do with dogs. But it hadn't even occurred to me that there's different breeds of goats and sheep. And uh, now I feel so silly for not having uh, thought about that before. But, of course, I've seen sheep that look different and goats that look different from other goats. Um, yeah. How many How many different uh, breeds of, let's say, goat or sheep are commonly found? I'm, I'm sure that there's plenty of very unusual ones. Oh yeah, there there's several hundred really out there. Um, there's a handful that are really known within the U.S. Um, about 47 kind of different breeds are known um, in the United States as far as sheep go. Um, and then I would say that we're getting a little bit more uh, specific into kind of some stuff here within the the state of Florida as well. Not all of those breeds are created equally in regards to you know the products that they produce as well as their survivability. And we, we certainly live in a very harsh uh, environment that not a lot of these guys are able to sustain due to our um, incredibly hot and humid summers. Um, so we have a handful of breeds that I think do a pretty, pretty fair job of um, being able to survive here and that I can count those probably on two hands. Um, you'll have some, some different opinions on that depending on who you talk to, but I think for the most part fairly successfully when there's just a handful that that can do well here and a lot of that plays back to one of the primary um health conditions that we see in these guys and that's related to gastrointestinal parasites oh uh tell me more yeah <laughs> so um homunculus contortus which is also ne- uh, called the barber pole worm um it has that nickname because if you look at look at this parasite under the microscope and look at the worm itself it's uh, kind of white with a, a red ring in the middle of it. So if you think about the barbershop, that pole, that's kind of uh, what it looks like if you look at it really closely. So that's how it got its nickname. But that, that parasite um, lives uh, in, the, in the ground. It has a life cycle that goes, goes through our small ruminants. They consume it, and then they, whenever they defecate on the ground, the, the life cycle just basically repeats itself. And this, this parasite is very um, 
very fecund. It, it multiplies rapidly, and it has um, substantial ability to uh, suck blood from our, our uh, sheep and goats and causes severe anemia if we have really high levels of it. Um, and this parasite also loves uh, hot and humid and environments as well as rainfall. So we, we um, have a great environment for this parasite to survive 12 months out of the year versus some other parts of the country where they would get a break uh, in the winter months when we have a freeze and things like that. So those that plays heavily into our selection criteria for these animals to have an ability to, to live here and be sustained in this environment without a lot of um, additional interventions. Because um, whenever we start doing those things, that's when we we see problems occur. Um, and a lot of that ties back into challenges we have with uh, anthelmintic, which is also uh, another word for dewormer resistance and something that's um, become a real big problem worldwide, um, but especially here in the U.S. and where try to make selection criteria for these animals that have a natural ability to do some of this on their own and aid in our decreased use of those products. Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, in in this respect, it sounds like some of the considerations that people deal with in other kinds of pets, like even dogs and cats, come into play here. And that is that for folks who are keeping these animals, uh, might there need to be a regimen of, say, vaccinations? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, there's one one standard vaccine that we recommend really um, for small ruminants, and that's a CD&T combo. So that stands for Clostridium perfringens type C and D. And then the T in this case is Clostridium tetani. So that's a combo, combo drug or combo vaccine that we recommend um, on an annual basis. When we have lambs or kids, they get a series of two booster and then after that it becomes an annual if folks have um, specific challenges in their area there may be some other vaccines that we implement into their protocol but at a bare minimum that's really our basic recommendation well you know what i think that when we come back from this short break i want to discuss kind of the the well the the whole way that people might uh, care for these animals. That is to say, from like the beginning, from a young age, what folks would need in order to, you know, be able to satisfy these animals' needs, and then the kind of care that they might need on an ongoing basis. But let me remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT FM uh, today on this program. I'm really happy to be discussing a topic that we haven't had on the show before, and that's small ruminants. Ruminants with my guest, Dr. Brittany Deal. We're going to take a short break, and we will be back with more right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Brittany Deal, and we're talking about small ruminants today. In particular, we're talking about sheep and goats. And uh, Dr. Deal, for folks who maybe have a, a little bit of a property and have considered adding a kind of animal to their lives that maybe is beyond, say, a dog 
or a cat, or even a horse. We've certainly discussed horses on this program plenty of times. Um, a small ruminant might potentially be a good choice. Uh, but what kinds of concerns do people need to have first before they make that decision? We've talked about how you know, there are animals that they kind of because of our environment, maybe the wooliest sheep may not be the best choice. And there are considerations in terms of um, what kind of veterinary care they're going to need vis-a-vis vaccinations, as we, we hinted at just before the break. Um, but what, what kind of considerations should people make? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think part of those considerations really um, kind of have a facet off of what their ultimate goal is for these animals. Are they meant to be a, a pet? You know, are they using them for a production setting? And then based off of those goals, you want to kind of make some of those decisions. But ultimately, you know, some of that's going to play into how much land or property that is available uh, to you. So that's also going to help you be able to decide the number of animals that you're able to um, feasibly sustain in your operation. It's certainly not a recommendation to be feeding these animals a lot of concentrates. So the goal would be that they would be kind of surviving off the land, if you will, for uh, in general um, fencing and things like uh, that. It seems pretty general. However, you have to have uh, decently high fences for some of these goats as they like to climb and that goes along with their browser interests that I mentioned earlier versus uh, sheep you might be a little easier to maintain in a in a fence that's not maybe not quite as secure as you would need um, for the goat um, you need to consider you know annual annual things or so if you have a wool sheep they need to be sheared on an annual uh, basis if you have we do have hair sheep as well so they do not require um, shearing or anything like that. Most of our goats um, are also hair, but again, if you have the those uh, mohair um, with those angora goats, you perhaps um, you will need to have an uh, opportunity to be able to kind of shear them and remove that textile from them as well. Um, hoof trimming is something that needs to be done um, at a minimum on an annual basis, but usually um, a couple times per year. And we already mentioned vaccines. Um, and then I like to do um, some very regular um, checks for parasites, like I mentioned, because that's a, um, unfortunately a very, very deadly uh, thing if it, if it gets out of hand due to the severe anemia that that parasite likes to cause. So um, I recommend for producers to um, you know, attend some um, extension events or reach out to uh, some other producers that have the ability to teach them how to do uh, something called FAMACHA scoring. And we use that um, that tool. It's a, a way that we look at the conjunctiva of the eye um, to be able to gauge anemia status on these animals, um, specific to Homunculus catortis, which is that barber pole worm that I mentioned earlier. Um, and that allows us to determine who might need to be dewormed and who might not need to be and then make ultimately make um, further selection uh, kind of decisions based on that information as well. Yeah, okay. And uh, we talked that they're going to you know, need to have some, some property. And if in the instances in which animals might need to have supplementary food, what are the best options? Yeah, so some of the supplementary foods usually um, include haze or some, some grains. Um, typically, we try to minimize, like I said, the grain, especially unless this is a production animal that's like lactating um, or producing milk, especially um, for our males. We like to decrease 
excess grain intake for them as they they are predisposed to uh, getting urinary uh, calculi and stones, um, which is kind of a similar concept to a kidney stone, but just a little bit further down the line of um, the urinary tract. So that's something that we want to kind of try to keep in check, and that's something that you can have producers uh, discuss with their veterinarian on, on proper recommendations for the levels of those to be consumed. And then we also recommend a free-choice mineral for these guys, um, and that should be specific to the sheep or the goat. You don't want to give them the same mineral as sheep are quite sensitive to excess copper, and that can be deadly to them. However, uh, goats have an ability to withstand copper levels much easier. Okay, hold on. I'm going to need you to, to <laughs> if you can, uh, explain here, what, why, would, why would these need to be supplemented? Say that one more time for me. So um, you mentioned they they might need some sort of minerals or something like that. Um, yeah. Is this, is this something that they wouldn't be able to acquire just from grazing? Yeah, typically, um, you know, different parts of the country have different, you know, mineral levels uh, within the soils in certain areas of the U.S. or even, you know, not even, you can have different deficiencies or excesses in different parts of the same states, really. Um, so, yeah, it's a it's an opportunity to make sure they're getting what they need as far as, as those minerals go um, and to kind of compensate for some of the losses that are not naturally present within the soil. Now, how would one go about determining what you might need to supplement? Because, uh, you know, as, as, as you say, um, you know, the, the different conditions in different places might vary. Uh, is a soil test necessary? Does somebody need to come out and do an analysis on the grass or whatever grows that these animals might be eating? Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly a recommendation to do annual uh, soil testing and the extension office can local extension office can help facilitate that. Um, But in general, um, I recommend a free choice mineral, um, which is a combination of um, multiple products within that. And it's kind of, it's fed on an ad lib basis. So the animal basically consumes what, what they need. And then they kind of back off of it whenever they don't. Um, But yeah, if you want to get really specific with it and kind of see where some of those levels are, especially if you have uh, severe severe deficiencies, um, you certainly want to recommend doing some soil testing on an annual basis. When you say that they take it when they need it and then back off, they just sort of sense that they have a need for it? Yeah, whenever they have um, certain deficiencies, we can see them try to kind of find it elsewhere. You can see them you know, licking concrete or eating, you know, wood or different things like that. And we'll see this in other species as well, Um, depending on some of the deficiencies they have. Some of them don't eat dirt and whatnot. So, yes, um, they do have an ability to an extent. um, It's not completely perfect, but um, to kind of sense whenever they're able to, when they've met some of those needs um, as well. That's absolutely fascinating. Is it understood at all how how they've, how they sense that, how they know what they're lacking and and how they might satisfy that? I mean, I think some of it, you know, is physiological, just like, you know, kind of us, whenever we get dehydrated and salt's really high within our body, you know, we want to take in a lot of excess water to try to help compensate for that. So some of it, I think it, it plays back to a very similar concept of that with some of those different um, vitamins and minerals. And then some of it... Um, I don't know that we fully uh, 
have a complete grasp on that. And that's why it is so important to kind of do soil testing to see where your where the land is. And then also on the, kind of the flip side of that, we can also take a blood sample or something like that from those animals, especially if we're having some health issues with them and are concerned about their levels, uh, to send it out also to see if they have deficiencies in certain areas and how we might try to compensate for that. When folks are keeping these animals just kind of as backyard sort of animals, so to speak, and not in large agricultural concerns, um, mm-hmm. they they may not, you know, be looking to utilize any of the products that these animals are capable of producing, that is to say, you know, wool or milk or something like that. Um, right. But if they were to choose to do that, what what kinds of things would they need to do nutritionally um, to make sure that it could work out for them? Does it, do the nutritional needs change? I mean, certainly if you have um, pregnant ewes or does, um, you know, they have a, a little bit of a higher, higher demand for energy, but the real demand for energy is going to be whenever they're lactating. So they have offspring on them. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to, to produce milk um, as well as um, water intake. Um, so you'll see, Lactating ewes or does um, consume way more water than an animal that's not. Um, and then um, a lot of the other management throughout the year is kind, is kind of similar. Um, and then same deal with the, the kids or the lambs. Um, they're going to need kind of an increased nutritional plane as well to get them to grow well. I mean, they'll still grow even if they're just consuming grass and not those concentrates. It just might not be nearly as rapidly as they would. And part of that is going to kind of derive off of if there's a certain market window that you're trying to hit to kind of try to sell those animals, you might want to get there a little bit sooner. Um, to, and also to kind of decrease your profit loss margin because you're going to have a um, perhaps a better chance to make a greater profit if you can get them to market weight sooner versus kind of letting them go on for six months or eight months till they actually re- kind of achieve that that market weight, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I do understand. Is there a particular season in in which they tend to give birth? Yeah, so small ruminants uh, broadly are um, seasonal breeders, so they are short-day breeders. So typically they will um, begin um, coming into estrus um, typically in the fall. So like I said, short day. So as our days are starting to get shorter, so typically end of August, kind of time frame and they'll continue through um late winter so kind of january february maybe even march perhaps and then they're kind of their uh repro tracks are kind of quiet um throughout the summer and whatnot we do have a couple selective breeds that will um are capable rather of getting pregnant um during any time of the year but as in general though both sheep and goats are are seasonal. So for most folks, um, that means they are going to be breeding in the fall. And we have a five, roughly a five-month gestation window on these guys. So for most folks in a traditional setting, they're going to be lambing and kidding. About now, um, in January or February or March, you will have a handful of folks that try to breed their animals um, here at the end of winter, beginning of spring, and lamb in the fall. But I would say that is not 
as common as spring lambing is most common. Now, do, do people really need to get involved in the way that they sometimes do with, say, horses? Or if you just have males and females together, the problem kind of just solves itself? So do you, you mean, uh, we need to, you, I would recommend, um, yeah, they can, they can naturally breed. Um, you can, we can also do, um, you know, artificial insemination and things like that if we're trying to get outside genetics as part of our program and whatnot. But yeah, you can, as long as they are in the correct season, they'll, they'll do their own thing. Yeah. And how long is the gestational period? It's about five months, roughly, for both of them, okay. give or take a couple yeah. of days. Okay. And so then when these, when these you know, lambs or, or kids come around, they, as you have mentioned before, they will require sort of a lot of the mother's resources in terms of the lactation and everything like that. Um, then, you know, the mothers will, will be focusing on, on that, presumably, but will they... First of all, will they have primarily one uh, one offspring at a time? Yeah, so for most of the time for our ewes uh, or does that are uh, having their first first set of babies, a lot of times they will have, have a single. Um, but in most scenarios, we see twins pretty commonly. Um, and then from time to time, we certainly see triplets and even quads. Um, but most commonly, I would say twins um, or singles are more common, but we will we will see some of the others as well. Now, I do know that foals, the offspring of, of horses, the baby horses, will be up and moving pretty quickly, you know, within a few hours. Is the same true with, with sheep, uh, with lambs, and with kids? Yes, absolutely. They're, they should be up running around in somewhere between 5 and 30 minutes. Um, they're ready to go. Yeah. And it's been explained to me that this is because these are our prey species. And uh, I've never quite understood who who the predators are for horses. But uh, it's not hard to imagine that a, a little lamb or a, a, a small kid could be a meal for some sort of larger um, carnivore. That said, um, you know, these animals kind of being, you know, up and about and, and moving around must mean that in a group setting they become kind of sociable correct are, are they are they pretty sociable animals yeah absolutely they have sheep even more than goats i would say have um really strong kind of herding instincts but both both species do for sure um they definitely gravitate and want to be together they're not usually huge fans of kind of being separated off um from the rest of the group will other sheep or other goats be tolerant of the different lambs and kids that might be around them, even if they're not their specific offspring? Yeah, I mean, they're typically fine with them um, being together. I mean, if one of the lambs or kids comes up to try to nurse from them and it's not there, they'll usually kind of give them a light headbutt and kind of push them away. But as far as them being like in the same pasture field or something like that, yeah, they're, they're fine to be together. And so will they get their first vaccinations and everything at a pretty young age then? Yeah, typically. I mean, there's a, a few different things kind of that have to be considered in regards to when we start them. A lot of times I recommend vaccinating the ewes or the does about four or six weeks prior to them lambing or kidding, and that'll help with getting kind of some of the maternal transfer of some of those 
those things that we talked about in the vaccine transfer to the baby um, through colostrum whenever they're first born. But if folks don't vaccinate the user, the dose in that window, then um, I typically will recommend the vaccine to be a little bit uh, earlier for that lamb and kid. But normally um, about four to six weeks of age is when I do the first the first um, series of that. And then about three to four weeks later, they'll get a booster. If we have an animal that um, dam was not vaccinated while the babies were in utero, then typically I'll re- actually recommend um, kind of a, a series of three vaccines for them. So usually they're going to get the first one in about the first week of life. Then about um, four weeks later, they'll get the second one. And four weeks after that, they'll get the third. And then from both of those times after the last, they'll move to an annual booster on that. Now, will these lambs and kids be eating grass or or other feed at the same time that they're nursing, or are they doing one or the other? Yeah, so normally, um, again, part of that plays into kind of some management considerations. Um, from the producer and kind of what their goals are, as well as some of their, you know, financial considerations to do extra supplementation. But usually for the first couple of weeks, their primary only feed source is going to be milk. And then after after a couple of weeks of age, if the producer uh, wants to start offering them some other uh, concentrates, meaning grains, um, they definitely will start to consume that. And some of that earlier consumption of that will help that rumen start to kind of function. Um, And then grass, obviously, if they have grass or hay available to them, they're going to start consuming that about the same time uh, as the grain, but continue to consume milk also. And then again, depending on the producer's operation, the time in which they wean these animals also can vary. But most folks, I would say on average, are going to wean them somewhere between 60 and 90 days of age. Okay. All right. So that's really... Uh, that's not too bad. Uh, I kind of thought it might even be longer. Well, I think this is a, a good place for us to take another break, Dr. Deal. And when we come back, there's still a whole lot more to talk about with small ruminants. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today is Dr. Brittany Deal from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. And this is Animal Airwaves. I hope you can stay tuned because we'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Brittany Deal, and we're talking about small ruminants. And when we left off, we were sort of talking about the uh, breeding of these animals and the care of uh, young foals. I'm sorry, not foals, uh, young kids and young lambs. And and we had been discussing sort of the weaning process and in then once these animals uh, become kind of adults, Dr. Deal, do they have similar lifespans? Yeah. Uh, as far as sheep and goats go, yeah. I would say yes. Um, you know, it, part of this depends on kind of how how hard they're being produced or, sorry, how hard they're being pushed um, for production and whatnot versus um, just being a, a pet and whatnot. But in general, I would say these guys still, even a production setting, can live to, um, and be a productive member um, of that herd or flock for, you know, nine or ten years, potentially. Um, yeah, well, that's a pretty, that's a pretty good run. Uh, so many of these 
animals, though. I mean, the sheep and goats have been kept by people for so long because they do offer something uh, that we want, and that might be meat, that might be wool, that might be milk to make cheese or so forth. Um, when you are going about your day, are you dealing uh, occasionally with commercial uh, you know, farms and, and folks who are raising these not just as like pets, but r- really like in, in a commercial concern, raising these animals to make money? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'd say a lot. Most of the folks that I'm working with are actually um, kind of doing it on a production setting. Although I definitely do encounter some folks that are also are using them just as pets too. Yeah, and when the folks who are doing this commercially, uh, they, I mean, certainly their concerns um, and and their operations have to be focused on keeping these animals healthy and, and and keeping them productive. And I imagine anybody who's been doing this for a long time has gotten pretty good at it. Uh, but what kinds of things come up uh, when you are called out to a, a farm? What kinds of issues do you deal with on a regular basis? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we already touched on, you know, is the, the parasite issue. It seems that, that that is a problem all the time um, for folks, some folks that have been doing it for a long time, um, and some folks that also have not. Um, that I would still say across the board that is the most common challenge that I, I deal with with producers. Um, and again, a lot of it just goes back to the fact that we have a really challenging environment um, for them to to live in. Um, and then you know beyond that, I mean there there's a handful of different things with um, diagnoses within herd herd settings that we may see that not have in. Uh, you know, smaller, smaller settings of flocks, but different things, um, you know, from abortions to uh, working up, you know, herd, herd health uh, protocols for, you know, foot rot or um, other, other contagious organisms and things like that. Yeah. Now, for, for folks who are raising these animals for milk that they will eventually might become cheese or even just stay milk. Um, mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's one part of it. But uh, are some of these animals going to be consumed as meat? Yeah, absolutely. Um, at the end of the day, for most of those animals that are, you know, produced for dairy, dairy production, I mean, their ultimate after they're done producing milk and whatnot still ends up um, for meat. And then most of the other animals that are not being produced for the are utilized to produce those dairy products are um, at the end of the day going for meat production yes so with that in mind um, do they have any any special or unusual nutritional needs um I would say not outside of really kind of what we we mentioned earlier it doesn't necessarily uh, uh, change that a lot more of it just changes kind of the like I said earlier, the kind of the rate at which you're trying to get them there that may change your your regimen of how fast you feed them or some of the kind of the protein contents of the feed and whatnot. But outside of that, it's not it's not a huge uh, change. I've had it described to me the the operation, the commercial operation at dairy farms for cattle. Are there are there similar uh, tools in place for getting milk from say goats where 
um, you know, there's all kinds of apparatus and machinery, um, or is this still a, a kind of a manual thing? No, absolutely. We have very similar setups, just like what we have um, for the cows, just on a very smaller scale. Um, in the state of Florida, there's really only two kind of grade A dairies in the state. So ones that are, you know, kind of formally, they're uh, USDA inspected and whatnot and selling selling that that product kind of on a, on a bigger scale, if you will. I know that there are plenty of other folks that also are um, milking dairy goats kind of just for their, their own use and, and things like that. Um, but, yeah, we, we have very similar setups as the dairy in, the bovine dairy industry, um, just kind of smaller scale for, for these guys. Now, one of the topics that has come up before on this program as concerns veterinary medicine as a whole is – the dearth of veterinarians available to to help in caring for animals in, in across a broad range of uh, different specialties. You are the first veterinarian I think I've had on the show in over a dozen years who I've spoken with about small ruminants. Does this suggest that there are not many uh, folks like you who specialize in this? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty fair statement for the most part. I think the popularity of these uh, species is is definitely increasing. They, like we mentioned, kind of at the beginning of the show, you know, they've been they've always been around, but some of the kind of the interest and whatnot in them has definitely grown um, from a producer standpoint as well as kind of as veterinarians as well. I think we have some more. Uh, students coming up and students that are recent graduates that are interested in practicing um, on these animals uh, much more frequently as compared into the past. But yeah, it certainly can be a challenge to find um, a vet that will work on small ruminants, especially depending on your location. And part of that is kind of uh, part of my job as well. I'm, I'm, I'm not only a resource for the producers and whatnot, but also for some of those those local private practitioners as well, whenever they get, you know, stumped or whatnot, looking for other educational opportunities, they'll, they'll reach out to me um, to try to, and if I don't know the answer, I'll try to find them somebody that does to connect them. Yeah. I mean, it, it occurs to me that, you know, small ruminants are animals that, well, okay. So we see them, you know, in the United States, somebody like me, who's, who's grown up in, you know, cities, or, you know, small cities uh, like Gainesville or, you know, where I come from down in St. Petersburg, well, I don't have a lot of opportunity to interact with small ruminants outside of, say, a petting zoo. Um, So when you meet folks who are interested in taking this up as a specialty, do they come from maybe agricultural backgrounds or these folks who maybe spent time uh, growing up near farms and other animals? Um, I think that's definitely true for the bovine side of things. Um, I think that the small ruminant's probably a mix of both. I see plenty of uh, folks that are, you know, more interested in the dogs and cats and that perhaps did grow up in kind of more suburb uh, situations. But as as these animals are becoming more popular um, for folks to also have in pe- as pets or even folks that, you know, just own um, you know, a couple acres of land and they want to do a little bit of livestock, but they don't have enough facilities to, to handle having cows or perhaps don't have, um, you know, want to put the financial 
um, investment into having some cows. It's becoming more popular to have these small ruminants. So these students are also recognizing that. And I think kind of they're, they're becoming more open uh, to practicing on some of these small ruminants. Can you attribute, make any sort of uh, guesses to or conjecture as to why you think it's becoming more popular for folks to have a small ruminant as like a as like a pet, just an animal that's maybe around around the household, you know, maybe on your property somewhere? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it, you know, just some of the shifts that we've seen in kind of society, especially since the COVID era, if you will, um, just with some folks kind of going back to their their kind of desire, I think, to do some do some other stuff that's a little bit more sustainable and whatnot, and folks just wanting to to kind of have that land, have that opportunity for um, you know agriculture, even ag- agriculture tax exemptions and things like that. These guys will help kind of suffice that niche, and again, it's not near as much of a investment um, in the animal as well as infrastructure and and um, what not to kind of house them as compared to to some of our bigger you know horses or cattle and whatnot. Right. And finally, before we reach the conclusion of the program, you know, no no animal is free to care for. Is it is it a costly hobby to have if you're not doing this for commercial purposes, but just to kind of have these animals around? Is it expensive? Yeah, I mean, I think again, it plays plays back into what your your end goal is with them, and trying to select animals that have an ability to kind of survive in this environment is going to make it a lot less costly than if you find an animal that really struggles to survive here. And some of that goes back to breed selection and individual selection as well. Um, so I I think that you can you can get by with um, you know a couple dollars uh, per head per day. Um, for these guys, if you if you're doing a good job with your your selection on them, but if not, yeah, certainly they can they can be can be a cost, no question. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, you know, <laughs> anything we're doing probably is. Uh, I, Doctor Deal, thank you so much for talking with me today. This was a, a delight to be able to learn a, a bit about small ruminants. When again, like I say on the show, I've had a precious little opportunity to talk about them. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And like I said, um, if folks are interested um, in these animals, we host several extension events per year. And we're also on social media, on Facebook and Instagram. So feel free to look us up. And we put on a conference in September, um, as well as uh, two other uh, ram and a buck tests each summer. So if if anybody's interested, feel free to to look us up on the web and reach out. Okay, and they'd want to look up UF Small Ruminant Extension. Yep, UF Small Ruminant Extension, that's right. Or if you want to um, look for the conference directly, it's going to be UF Small Ruminant Short Course, and then those other two programs are UF Buck Test and UF Ram Test. Wonderful. Uh, Brittany Deal is a clinical assistant professor and small ruminant extension specialist at the University of Florida. College of Veterinary Medicine. I want to also thank there Sarah Carey and Amanda Buckley for their help with the program. And to all of you for listening today to Animal Airwaves Live, thank you. Um, It's a pleasure being with you. Hope you'll join me again next time for another episode. Bye-bye.